You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I, of course, am James Crepia, the Oregon Ducks beat reporter for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. And uh, on this edition of the episode, I'm joined by our columnist at the Oregonian and Oregon Live, Mr. Bill Orem, uh, who has joined us before. And we will uh, go over and kind of at the midpoint of things, Bill, we'll have a uh, assessment of where Oregon is now, uh, a little bit of a uh, holistic recap of the first six games and where the Ducks stand as of today, and then also obviously going forward, um, and not so much an early look at UCLA specifically, but more of an early look at the second half of the season as uh, Oregon is in its bye week, coming off of uh, the very lopsided win over Arizona, which it I've, I never intended to be going over uh, the Arizona game in depth anyway, but there, quite honestly, was just not much to say uh, from 49-22 that has a lot of depth uh, because, truly, the most basic way of looking at this, in my perspective, is uh, Oregon is significantly better than Arizona. They knew that going in. Yeah. Um, the old Dennis Green line, or the late Dennis Green of, you know, we, they are who they thought they were. Arizona is not a good team. Um, they're, they're a team that is very much in rebuilding that has an athletic quarterback and three really good receivers, one or two decent defenders, and that's it. And we knew that. So I'm not, you know, what is there to say about 49-22? Oregon is a better team. It showed it pillar to post. Um, The most impressive stat of the night to me was the no tackles for loss allowed because I don't care who you play, that's hard to do on air. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was really impressive. But uh, you watched it. Uh, as well, Bill, uh, and uh, obviously been keeping tabs on Oregon State as well, so you get a little bit more of a holistic uh, view of the right. Pac-12 uh, uh, than most of us, um, taking a look at more games on a, on a given weekend than uh, than even I uh, at times. So your perspective on um, at least this past Saturday, and like I say, then we'll take kind of a, a broader lens uh, view of things for the Ducks so far. I mean, I just thought that it was, you know, it was it was the kind of dominant win that you expect from a conference contender against a you know a team that's down in you know eighth, ninth, tenth in the conference. Um, you know, you could tell that the you know that Arizona had sort of a, a strategy coming in and and knew they couldn't get behind because of how explosive the Oregon offense has been, and you know, like they took the ball first and you know you know, tried to, tried to sort of establish themselves offensively, but you know, and you did kind of see quite and to and their they credit, did. They, right. did. they moved but the ball. They, you could see the, you just could sort of see the tightening clench of the ducks as, as the game went on. And, you know, I mean, it was just, you know, further establishment of, you know, how effective this offense has been. Like I'm blown away by the ducks offense. I mean, not to go big picture right off the bat here, but you know, if you'd told me early on that the ducks would have the best offense, 
in the you know in the conference and then you know where they would have their struggles would be defensively you know that was not what i was led to believe was going to be the hallmark of this team coming into the season um and especially after that georgia game right when you know not that anything looked like the hallmark of this team with the missed tackles and and you know the defensive performance but you know offensively you know the ducks were you know felt very um, rudderless without an identity. And then, you know, you get, you fast forward a couple of weeks and, you know, that looks like an offense that really knows what it's doing. Kenny Dillingham has really, uh, maximized Bo Nix. You know, the running game has been extremely potent with kind of the, the by committee attack. Um, so, I mean, I've just been really impressed by the ducks offensively. And I thought that that was on display in Tucson. Yeah. The big thing to me was, uh, I say the no tackles for loss allowed where the, the ultimately the strength that we knew the entire off season from the minute that the starting five all announced that they were coming back, uh, which, to be honest, if you go back from just the starting five as a whole uh, last December, if you take it back all the way to Pac-12 Media Day 2021, the minute that Alex Forsyth said he was coming back, mm-hmm. it was almost a foregone conclusion that that meant that Ryan Walk was also coming back. You knew that uh, a younger player like a Jackson Powers Johnson, obviously there was no decision to be had there. Uh, he was that, that was a, a given, and then it became all right. You needed to know about TJ and Sala, and Sala, te- you know, momentarily was gone and ultimately came back. Um, and then Stephen Jones during the bowl game announcing he was coming back. So the minute that you had those guys, it became obvious that the strength of this team was going to be the offensive line. It has been. It's been on display the entire season, uh, but it was again on Saturday. And mm-hmm. when you see that. Uh, that is what sets the tone all the time. You know, it's amazing how much better, and we'll get obviously into the the broader picture of this, but it's amazing how much better everybody plays, particularly a quarterback plays, when they're not facing constant pressure. Yeah, uh, and that's a credit to the offensive line, and it's also, to be fair, uh, holistically, call it what it is for you know for uh, an evaluating Bo Nix. Um, you know, he's not playing SEC defenses every week. Mm-hmm. So, in particular, coming off this Arizona game, uh, and even the Stanford game, quite frankly, uh, so the past two weeks, these are really bad defenses, and these are you just got to call it what it is. They're really bad. Uh, they're really bad statistically. They're really bad in how they played against Oregon, and they're really bad in terms of top end NFL talent, mm-hmm. uh, in which. And guess what? They're going to play Colorado still in the second half of the season, and they're not very good either. In fact, they're probably one of the worst in the country in every category. Um, so there is something to be said for when you have better protection, maximizing the opportunity, and how much better you play in general. And again, even the Georgia game, as ugly as that was, they did move the ball pretty consistently. They just kept shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, right. The two turnovers, the second one obviously being particularly egregious. But outside of the second turnover, they were moving the ball really effectively. Uh, and the first turnover, you just say, hey, that's an incredible play by the defensive back on a long throw. Not a big deal. Since then, they have not played, outside of Washington State's defense, a particularly good defense. And even that defense doesn't have a bevy of NFL players on it. You know, Stanford's got a absolutely terrific cornerback in Caillou Blue Kelly. And Kendall Williamson at safety is probably going to be a player in the league. And Arizona has a terrific cornerback in Christian Roland Wallace and a solid safety in Jackson Turner. Both And in both of those games, the past two weeks, both those all those players that I just mentioned 
all got hurt during the games other than Roland Wallace. Everybody else got hurt in the game. Uh, and in, St- in Stanford's case, both those guys were basically out the entire second half. So even the limited talent that Oregon's most you know recent opponents have had, you can either easily avoid or in the cases of the game specifically, they literally got hurt during the game, unfortunately, and and you know didn't even have to uh, to play Oregon all that much, and then it made it you know an advantage even more glaring. But in the front seven, Oregon has not been challenged at all by anybody, partially because their offensive line is that good, and partially because the opposing front sevens last five weeks are not good. Um, they're not very talented. BYU is as far and away the best of the, of the group. Mm-hmm. Um, quite honestly, and, and schematically, Washington State's is the best um, by by that group. That is going to change uh, rather dramatically here in the second half of the season. But to, like I say, in evaluating things um, so far from what we've seen, as much credit as is due, and there is much, uh, there is also a degree of context in saying, yeah, but let's not forget here that Stanford is 110th in scoring defense, that Arizona is 115th in scoring defense. You know, um, we're not even going to mention Eastern Washington. So, you know, there's something to be said for, yes, doing well, playing extremely well, even against bad competition, is still noteworthy in that if you played poorly against bad competition, we'd be saying, oh, my God, what, how bad is this? This is a mess. You can't even beat up on the bad teams. That kind of perspective. No, and I think that's kind of, to, to your point, Bill, I think part of what um, this fan base, particularly over the last four years, after games like Stanford, quite frankly, where, look, the Stanford team of 2018, 2019, um, even 2020, was certainly better than the Stanford teams of the past two seasons. But the night, the 2019 win at Stanford at the time, a lot of this fan base was almost dissatisfied with that kind of a win. And I remember saying after we're going, I mean, I don't know what y'all are expecting. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think a multi-score win on the road at Stanford, a place that's not exactly been uh, very kind uh, over the last 10, 15 years, you know, take it and, and be happy with the kind of thing. But this is a fan base who wants to see the explosive offense. This is a fan base who wants to beat up on teams that they feel are inferior by a significant margin and not just have to grind games out and, and play that kind of style that they were at times. Well, now at the halfway point of this season, it is that they're beating up on the bad teams. They are. And that's Mm -hmm. a credit to them. You know, they are playing stylistically speaking, not just that at five and one, they are where they quote unquote ought to be because they, they are, I mean, that that, Mm -hmm. just being realistic, but stylistically to your point, I think folks are pretty satisfied um, over the last five weeks because they are playing the way, as this fan base had grown accustomed to, um, whether that's realistic or not is beside the point, (laughs) they started to grow accustomed to being one of the leading offenses in the country. It was putting up 40-plus points every week and four and five and 600 yards every week and, you know, not being a particularly bland style of play. Well, they've gone out and done that. Uh, And I think that's kind of the big picture to me of, you know, how this offense has looked to your point. Uh, is definitely probably more in the mold of what many Oregon fans were hoping to see this season. Well, and you get to establish your identity, you know, and that's why this schedule really, to me, you know, lined up so well for the Ducks, 
you know, and listen, there are games they could have lost along the way. As you said, it is hard to win games. Ask Washington how hard it is to win games uh, week in and week out. But to me, you know, the fact that you did have, you know, BYU was certainly projected as a tough game. The Ducks made, you know, pretty quick work of, of, of BYU. Um, you know, Washington State could have easily been a loss. But aside from that, you've had weeks where you've really been able to sort of fine tune that offensive identity and you've, and you've, and you've seen it work. You know, the fact that it's against Stanford and Arizona to me should not be completely dismissed. Like you said, I mean, you're doing what you need to do there. And now you've got six weeks of a body of work going into a bye week going into, um, you know, what is the biggest game of the year against, against UCLA. Um, it really lines up really, really nicely for the ducks where they're able to kind of take that body of work from the first six weeks and then fine tune it and practice, you know, with the bye week going into, you know, what is a, you know, by, by mid season standards about as big as it gets in the PAC 12. Yeah. And, and the other aspect of this for the past two weeks, even in dominant wins, again, I, I, no question about it. I mean, the, the end results, the scoreboard speaks for themselves. The other part, and while this past week against Arizona was the most complete game of Oregon season so far, I would argue, while it was the most complete, that there were still very much areas to not just improve, but... And look, Jed Fish said going into the game, he was laying the groundwork for that fan base in... If, it didn't even take a very deep reading between the lines to understand that Jed Fish was basically telling the Arizona fan base, I am so happy for your support. Thank you so much for coming to a sellout, which, by the way, was not a sellout. Um, it may have been a sellout by, by money, but it was not a sellout by attendance. But be that as it may. Thanks for the support. Thrilled. Just be aware. Uh, we're not very good. And we're still part of a build. There's going to be, as he put, ebbs and flows. In other words, we're going to lose. And I need you to show up again. Um, so, so please do that when we're playing a game that we're not going to absolutely lose. Um, he said that going into the game afterward. And here's the thing to, to his credit, as he points out, not just because this is silver linings. Again, this is a coach who's calling it as it was like, who I think is going to build Arizona back to being something far more formidable, but he's absolutely right. You know, if you take outside of, you know, in terms of how the finish all right, yeah, it's garbage time. Oh, well, it's a lopsided score. Well, Oregon doesn't have to try that hard. All true. But he's got a young team who he's got to develop. And guess what? They scored the final 10 points of that game. Nine points with a failed extra point. Well, and that that spanned the final, you know, 20 minutes. So this idea that, like, yes, it was a complete game because it's 49-22 and it was really 49-13 with 20 minutes to play. Yeah, but Oregon starters were still in for a couple of series after that, and they were no longer clicking. Now, to the point, who cares when you're up 30-some-odd points? Right. Meant nothing to the outcome. But in terms of when you want to talk about complete 60-minute football games, it was the most so. But whether it's Arizona who can step away saying, hey, look, you know, obviously the game is in hand, but... There were things they were looking to do and accomplish, and they did. Or if it's Stanford in the way that obviously that second half, Stanford outscored them 24 to 14 in the second half. And we know about the penalties and other things. Well, again, starters got pulled, this, that, the other. I understand. I'm saying simply that even in the most recent two games where they were blowouts and they were able to pull guys eventually and get second team guys in, and second team guys, many of whom played really well, 
They still didn't completely finish to the point of sheer dominance for 60 minutes. You know, they didn't treat one of their Pac-12 opponents yet like they treated Eastern Washington is what I'm getting at. So, and and, and UCLA is not going to be the example uh, necessarily to do that. Now, might, Colorado might be, uh, but we'll, we'll see when, when that trip comes up. But I mean, Eastern um, Washington would probably beat Colorado this year. I'm very comfortable I'm saying pretty the confident. Top five, yeah. the, top, the top five teams in the Big Sky Conference can all beat Colorado. I would not disagree. Uh, they, they are... They are a, a woeful, woeful team right now. Um, and look, that that's going to be part of their rebuild in the years ahead. But holistically for Oregon at this point, in terms of uh, what we have learned, some of the big picture stuff of what we've learned, what stood out to us, et cetera, we've mentioned the offense a little bit. To me, I start with, when we already know about the O-line, I think some of the big questions that we had in the offseason in terms of, all right, starting with quarterback, hey, even if you very much run to the impression that it was uh, presumably going to be Bo Nix, which I felt was a pretty good presumption most of the offseason, but, you know, teach their own, um, (laughs) what exactly you were going to get with him. And he has, again, look, I'm not just, you know, I'm not one to look just – Hey, you skip past the Georgia game because Georgia's that good and it was the season opener and that was, you know, five, six weeks ago. Uh, no, because guess what? If you were an Oregon fan still clinging to hope, still clinging to the infinitesimal chance, still saying, hey, well, we got this big undefeated you know, matchup with undefeated UCLA, who, by the way, hasn't played anybody um, outside of Utah, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so, like, don't tell me about how great UCLA is when they barely beat, you know, South Alabama or whatever. Like, stop. Um we got this big marquee matchup coming up. Uh, you got Utah and Washington and Oregon State in November. And then, hey, if they make it to Vegas, uh, hope to play an undefeated USC. So, therefore, project out 10 weeks from now and tell me about how this team still has a fraction of a chance of a college football playoff berth. Well, if you want to play in a playoff, then you better consider the entire body of work which means being blown out, which means throwing an, unforgivable, uh, an unforgivable interception, which means having a tough time with that team. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't just throw it out because it was six weeks ago because it doesn't serve your purposes today. So there are things to be said for, yeah, when they played the very best competition out there, they got blown off the stage. But in the inferior competition they have played the last five weeks, they have stood out very well. And how Nix has played over those five weeks has been excellent. His decision-making has improved each and every week. Um, he has rarely put the ball in jeopardy in general let alone right. um, this past week where really not at all. And in the situational splits that really defined his Auburn career, all right, hey, I'm not saying Arizona was a tough place to play. It was not. Wazoo was. You know, in its fourth quarter, he got a score. Mm-hmm. And not just the go-ahead drive, the drive to keep it alive before that. And for as, as much as there is to rave about the throw to Chase Cota this past week, and it was a great one. The throw to Bucky Irving on fourth and two on the drive that ended with the Cam McCormick touchdown at Wazoo, not the Troy Franklin touchdown. Mm-hmm. That is the throw of the season so far. Not even close. I mean, that was so far and away <laughs> an absolutely outrageous throw. <laughs> that was incredible. And those are the things that if you had said to any of us, not just to me, to you, to if you said to any Oregon fan, hey, you're going to get that throw. If you said to anybody since Bonex showed up in the first week of January, 
that their quarterback is going to play and make a play like that on the road, down scores, fourth quarter, fourth and two, to a running back who in January wasn't even you know part of the program. Right. Uh, yeah, people would have you know absolutely fallen over themselves to to agree to such things. Well, and I think you know. I never, yeah, similarly, I think that we were all pretty much on the same wavelength that it was going to be Bo Nix as, as the starter. But I mean, I remember having conversations with people in July where it's where it was like, yeah, he's going to start, but is he going to be the week four starter? You know what I mean? Like, is it, is he going to be the, is, 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 is he going to be the guy kind of for the duration? And I, I think obviously that was the plan, but I think it was easy enough to talk yourself into the idea that, you know, he'd come in and, and take his hits and, you know, he wasn't, you know, you'd see kind of the, the worst version that we saw, you know, from time to time at Auburn and, you know, then it would be someone else's turn. Um, and it's been the polar opposite of that where he has not only, you know, been, you know, <laughs> not only been good enough to hang on to the job. I mean, he's been exceptional. And like you said, he's gotten better. The decision-making has gotten better. You know, I'd have to think, I didn't see much of the Stanford game. If I'm being honest, James was his last real bad decision or was his last ugly play really that, that pick six at Wazoo. Has there been and anything even since that, then? and even that, quite honestly, was not a terrible decision. It was, it, it just wasn't. It was a hell of a play by the defender, mm-hmm. and ultimately, throwing the ball to Sean Dollars in that spot uh, on the way that that play was set up was not a bad decision. It was more in that because of the way the play went down, the linebacker went over the top of the. Uh, uh, receivers who were blocking on the edge um, and taking up their defenders, and basically, for all intents and purposes, from where Nix was and where he could see and whatnot, you know, and he basically had to anticipate that the linebacker could do that and that that was going to happen. In and of itself, though, throwing to the running back yeah. in that for the for the play, which which is how it was designed, was not a bad decision. It was just that matter of like how the throw was actually thrown. Like if you either throw it on an absolute dart yeah. and the, you know you're not floating it out there okay well the linebacker can't make up the, the ground that fast or conversely if you either pump fake or just float it out to the well deeper into the end zone the backer is going to have a harder time doing that either it's going to get broken up potentially or it's just going to be an easy catch for dollars so even that decision which was yes a pick six so therefore it must have been bad well it was bad in the end result, but like I say, I, I don't think the decision itself was necessarily egregious. It was just a hell of a play, and um, like I say, it came down to more about how the ball was thrown rather than where it was thrown um, on that particular one. But yeah, that's really about it. There was, and I think, three maybe weeks one ago. other. Yeah, that was maybe one other ball in that game where, um, well, between you had like the cell, like the tip pass, basically. I think it was to Ferguson. I want to say it was in that game um, where it just kind of it may have been that one or BYU, where it was like just kind of worked out, or there was one where um, it either got broken up or um, a defender got a, a hand on it um, at Wazoo. Uh, I think on a ball to Coda over the middle, but no, short of that, um, no. The past two weeks, the the Stanford game, there were the two deep throws uh, into. It, it ends up looking like double coverage at the end of the play, and it kind of sort of is because I say kind of sort of because it's not inherent double coverage from the jump. Um, it, it's more about the timing of the throw, and in essence, the ball just has to get out sooner. Yeah. Uh, that's that's the long and short of it. So, it, it, yes, in one of those deep throws that ends up, like I say, in kind of sort of double coverage, 
absolutely should have been intercepted. So from a decision-making standpoint, yes, and they were deep throws and it ends up being incompletions. If they ended up being interceptions, <clears throat> it would have been turnovers at a, at a pretty big distance. But grand scheme, no, I, his decision-making outside of, of low low reward uh, uh, risk plays uh, the past couple of weeks. Because like I say, even on the interception, had the interceptions happened against Stanford, it would have been on 45-plus-yard throws. It would have been almost like punts. Um, it's not quite as, you know, like I say, it's just not that egregious. So, no, really, outside of, if you want to say the pick six at Wazoo or or even times before that, really has not been bad um, at all. And to me, the... To me, some of the situational splits is really the, the defining stuff because when you get into fourth quarter, when you get into red zone, when you get into uh, tight ball game kind of stuff, road, all those situational splits over his career, just look at what the numbers say. I mean, they, they, it, it tells the story of his, you know, the the the, the whole perception of Bo Nix during his uh, Auburn career, what defined it of, you know, good Bo, bad Bo, and, you know, one week mm-hmm. you get something like this, and then the next week it's looking like that. Well, look at his situational splits now. And, you know, things as simple as, I mean, fourth quarter. Last season, his quarterback efficiency in the fourth quarter was 96-56. No touchdowns and an interception. Now, again, remember, he got hurt. He missed the last couple of games of the season. But anything under 100 is awful. Awful. Now, in 20, he had a much higher number uh, in the fourth quarter. And in 19, it was kind of middle of the pack this year he's 139.58 in the fourth quarter and frankly it was an even stronger number um you know the, a couple of weeks ago so that's an area specifically like i say red zone some other side there's a red zone stat form beyond his own personal stat line bonix leads the country the country and pass attempts and pass yards Inside the red zone. He has 46 hmm. pass attempts inside the red zone. Oregon had fewer attempts last season on the whole season inside the red zone than Nix has at the halfway point. Last year, Oregon had 41 pass attempts in 14 games. It has 46 through six games. I mean, James, I mean, you... I just, I guess, like, just to put this in perspective, you know, I mean, we all know you covered Auburn previously. You mm-hmm. you covered the recruitment of Bo Nix to Auburn. Um, you followed that program maybe more closely than you follow, let's say, Illinois, right, I'm from afar. Bit, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, when 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 Bo Nix transfers in, is did you, how 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 likely did you see him having this kind of positive impact? The, and the, I mean, obviously, he's coming from the SEC to the Pac-12. He's going to see different kinds of defenses. He's got a familiar offensive coordinator. There were reasons to be optimistic for him here. Where were you on that spectrum? And and does this register as surprise for you? The certain situational moments, um, and I don't just mean all you know, leading a, a game-winning drive at Wazoo. Again, he won at LSU. And I don't just say that in terms of it's really hard to win at LSU. Auburn hadn't won at LSU since 1999 prior to last season. And believe me, they were reminded of it every other year when they went there. And it became, with every passing year that they didn't win, it became a bigger and bigger thing. 
I mean, you had players on that team who weren't born the last time that Auburn won there, including, frankly, I think Knicks might have been darn near one of them. So it became a thing in that organization in terms of this is a, a mountainous task to not just win on the road at one of the toughest places to play in college football, but it was like cursed to go there. And believe me, they had also been on the wrong side of some some really late game blunders um, as well. So he won there. So I'm not saying it was some Herculean effort to necessarily win at Wazoo by comparison. So that and the performance in and of itself, big, big moment, big for the season. Yes, some terrific plays and throws, the one to Irving, the one to Franklin, certainly. Stunned that it occurred? No, because like I say, he'd done it before. But to put it all together in that fashion, in that circumstance, is still massive, obviously. Um, the the totality of the situational moments that he's performed extremely good at where he had had some major struggles before. That's been impressive. Um, it has. I thought when he came in, regardless of who it was going to be, but especially him, and knowing how bad the Auburn offensive line had been for the entire time he was there, I had felt that he was going to be significantly better than what he was because, like I said at the beginning, amazing how much better a quarterback plays when he's not worried about getting hit constantly. Or, or having to escape the pocket and extend plays and run away from the rush constantly. And you just got to call it what it is. This, is not, this isn't just so far and away the best offensive line he's played behind in his college career and then therefore his career in general because not like he had a better high school offensive line or something. Um, Auburn's offensive line at times over the past three years Quite literally. I mean, I've had people tell me this who, who are in the SEC uh, and covering the SEC now um, and, and and have that perspective. Again, I obviously hadn't been there the past couple of years. There are people telling me that that might be the worst offensive line in that league, including with Vanderbilt. You know, they had transfers during his career. They had transfers in the, in starters who came from the Ivy League. Now, I'm not saying that there can't be an Ivy League player who's worth a darn. What I'm saying is that they shouldn't be starting at an SEC program who's trying to compete for national championships. So that's the difference. When you have a quarterback who has time to make the decisions, if decision-making is a problem, ratcheting up the uh, intensity and pressure and giving him less time to make those decisions makes the job more difficult. Give that guy that much more time. Give that guy that many more weaker defenses to play against. And you hope the results will dramatically improve. I thought Nix was a guy who could see dramatically improved results under those circumstances. And lo and behold, he is. Now, again, he's going to have some better ones to play. Okay, outside of Colorado in the second half, there's, there's going to be some significantly better defenses he's going to have to play, starting with UCLA um, in the second half of the season. But... I am not, I'm not blown away and mystified or stunned by the overall performance. Um, I am impressed by certain moments and certain situational moments that, as I say, really come to define his uh, career to date that he's done particularly well in. I am, I am uh, impressed that the offense has, as a whole, Nick specifically, but even the run game specifically, and certain stuff in the, uh, particularly in the tight ends and receiving core. 
like I just mentioned with the red zone, um, you know, while we spent a couple of weeks talking about, oh, they, they sell for a couple of field goals at times and, uh, you know, not naturally you want to score touchdowns all the time. You know, this team's red zone efficiency is really, really, really high, extremely high. Uh, and again, Oregon being way, way up there in terms of red zone attempts, you know, they're third in the country in red zone attempts offensively. And these are things that just, again, that you would assign anyone, anyone would have signed up for. You know, between the fact that you knew there was going to be a new quarterback and Knicks coming in, how about all the stuff in terms of offseason of, hey, Kenny Dillingham, 32-year-old offensive coordinator, never called plays before. And yes, he brought in a transfer quarterback who he's worked with before. But if anybody is going to profess to have said with absolute certainty that they knew that this is what the offense is going to look like, I mean, you're kidding yourself. How? You had no basis. You had no sample. You had no data by which to go off of to to make such a, a proclamation. Meanwhile, this is one of the most explosive offenses in the country. <laughs> and those are the things that, with Knicks leading it and, and other components of it, um, frankly, is, is addition in the run game. Um, not the fact that he has mobility or can run for some yards, but the level of it uh, has been also probably, that might honestly be one of the biggest surprises is just the, the extent to which he is running, and they want him to run. It's been an incredible weapon, especially on on you know fourth down. I mean, you think about some of the most important drives of the season. You know, Bo Nix is. Um, by the way, he can't be Bo. He can't be Nix. He is just Bo Nix. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Um, it is. It is scripture that it is. It is both <laughs> names at all times. Uh, Bo Nix is has been an incredible asset. You know, on those you know got to have it situations. You know, with his legs, fourth down. Um, you know, and I think you know on that on that kind of backbreaking series at the end of the first half against BYU. You saw it at Washington State, where you know he gives you just an incredible degree of confidence on on fourth down. You know, from midfield on. So I think that that's been a real um, game changer for the Ducks as well, where you know they have you know they have a guy that they believe that they can extend drives with, and and that has been. Um, to me, one of the most impressive things. I'd have to go back and look, or you could look, or somebody listening could look. Probably not me, but how many scoring drives um, the, the the Ducks have had this year have included Bo running for a, a first down at some point on that drive? I mean, I feel like it is a lot of them where he has, um, you know, he has gotten them out of tricky situations with his legs, and they've gone on to take advantage and score touchdowns on third down runs. He has uh, eleven carries for ninety-two yards. That's that's incredible, and it's even more incredible that you had that at the ready because I didn't tell you I was going there, and you just have no. that. And there's and five of uh, five of those eleven carries on third down specifically have resulted in, in first first downs. First oh, first downs. Down. I see. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so he's been particularly um, obviously particularly effective in, in that spot uh, from just from a rushing standpoint um, alone. Now, some of the areas we've mentioned, like, all right, these are all the things here. We're talking about all the positivity and certainly with Nixon and, and offensively, um, as we start to, uh, talk about more going forward to the second half of the season and areas of questions, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Bill, I think defense has to be that area and yeah. particularly pass defense where, um, as we were chatting about before we, uh, we fired up the podcast for folks who, uh, Again, if you want to put aside the Georgia game for any which reason, okay, do that. If you, we will get, I'll grant you that. But then let's throw away the Eastern Washington game for exactly the uh, you know the 180 degree reason. 
if you want to throw away Georgia because that's six weeks ago and that's a juggernaut. And uh, the the poor tackling issues uh, were to an extreme. Okay, then let's remove the next week against the FCS competition where everything was, you know, sunshine and rainbows. All right. Well, if you just go by the last four games, this pass defense is still one of the bottom 10 statistically in the country. And its situational spots on third down in particular are brutal. Absolutely brutal. And those are areas specifically to me that, I mean, this team absolutely has to correct, has to improve because you, I don't know if it's sustainable. I don't know. Well, if it's I mean, we'll find out sustainable to, and, and to win. Yeah. Sustainable and to win at a really high level. Right. Um, and, and to compete for conference championships, if not more, while allowing 66% completions on third down. I, I don't know if that's remotely sustainable. No, I don't. I, I In fact, I would suggest it probably is not uh, in any way sustainable. Doesn't that come into pretty clear focus next week? You know, when you're looking at that UCLA team with a fifth-year quarterback who has, you know, obviously been getting it done and looking like the, you know, you know the best of the conference at times. I mean, we're going to get a sense real quick of, of whether or not that that defense can kind of buckle up and you know and and lock in, especially against the pass when when they when when UCLA comes to town next Saturday. To a point, yes, it it, it can. But and I say but because one UCLA's receiving core is not that talented, and two because UCLA's pass defense is also terrible on third down. So it could be. Here's an area of weakness for both teams. They're both going to pay attention to try and fix it during the bye. And with veteran quarterbacks on both sides, they're just still able to exploit it or not. Um, you know, we'll see how, who adjusts better in that and, and who improves more in that particular area statistically. But I mean, th- there's no sugarcoating this. Oregon has allowed on pass defense on third down only 27 first downs on 53 pass attempts. Only one team in the country has allowed more third down conversions on pass plays. I mean, it didn't all happen against Georgia. (laughs) Some of this is just plain. You you, you put yourself in that spot. You finally get to that area, which is supposed to be the statistical areas that are in your favor. And it flips the other way. And again, here... Third and seven to nine. Third and at least somewhat long. Oregon has allowed 10 of 13 with seven conversions. 76, nearly 77% completion percentage. That's 127th in the country. That's That's in an area where you are supposed to be at a major statistical advantage. Case in point. And Bo has obviously watched them far more than myself. Oregon State, same split, third down, seven to nine, has allowed one completion on nine attempts. How is Oregon State playing better? How is Oregon State's defense, which obviously was not good and led to a defensive coordinator change last season, how is Oregon State playing better and playing better defensively? Well, when they get to a high probability, get off the field down, they're getting off the field. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Oregon is putting itself in positions to get off the field and then says, no, 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 it's okay, keep going. That's not sustainable if you're going to try and compete for a league championship. No, it's not. That's that's the difference. Yeah, and I think not what we expected from this Ducks defense, knowing the amount of experience that they had with that front seven. And, you know, you bring in defensive, you know, wizards, right? I mean, Dan Lanning, you know, gets the job because of the magic he worked with the defense at Georgia. You know, he brings in another, you know, former SEC coordinator in, in Tosh Lapoy. So it's, you know, again, I go back to kind of what I said at the top. This whole thing feels backwards to me because I figured it was going to be the defense that was carrying the Ducks while the offense caught up, and it's been completely the opposite. So, I mean, I guess if there is one thing that does give you some confidence for this defense, it's that you have the the talent there. You know you have the talent. You know you have the the brains in the, you know, in the in the film room and in the coach in the coaching suite. So, um maybe that's where you derive some confidence, but it is surprising that they have been such a sieve, and especially on third down. I mean, hearing those numbers for the first time from you is, um, you know, gobsmacking. Yeah. Those are, like I said, those, those are numbers that are hard to do. They're hard to overcome. Uh, and as I say, you can split out the Georgia splits all you want. Um, it, it's still bad. And it, particularly just in general pass defense, um, even if you want to take out all the garbage time stuff and just say, oh, well, you know, who cares when it was against, you know, Stanford, Arizona in this, and it's a three plus score game. Okay. Guess what? Again, no matter, no matter how small you want to make the sample, it, you, there's no sample you can come up with right now. That's particularly favorable in those spots. And again, if your standard is that you want to compete for and win and, and take it almost as a granted that you're going to compete for and win, uh, the Pac-12 championship, well, then you got to uphold the standards that mean playing like that. You know, this is not a program on the way up by way of, you know, this, this isn't years into a rebuild at Arizona or, or Colorado or even Oregon state for that matter, uh, where you say, Oh, okay, well, you know, there's going to be some lumps. There's going to be some clunkers here or there. This is stuff that we talked about back in the start of the build here at Oregon. This is the stuff that at the beginning of the Cristobal era under various different defensive coordinators, this is the stuff that got them beat, in 2019, it cost him a chance to make it to the college football playoff. Situational awareness, third down pass defense. Do I need to bring back Arizona State? No, these are the things that get you beat. These are the things that you lose and you turn around and go, you knew it all the whole time. You knew it was a problem the whole season. And then late in November, it kills you. These are the things you have to get shored up. But if you don't want to compete for championships, then, hey, then, you know, everything, then, then every week's an adventure. Then it's okay. Then, then you know you ride you ride the roller coaster, and then who cares? But if you actually want to uphold those standards, and obviously as you know this this coaching staff and this program does, I'm talking more in, from a fan perspective. Then you have to start to you know examine, particularly during a bye week that falls in the midseason, the areas that your team is deficient, and uh, pay close attention to in the second half whether or not there's going to be improvements. And pass defense is one, but another, probably the one that I've been. Um, after the past defense as a whole, probably the next uh, focus area for me is what has been your thoughts on on the pass rush as a whole? Um, not, maybe not necessarily individually, but as a whole, because that's an area to me, Bill, that admittedly I've been um, – I'm really not sure how to feel about it um, in, in the collective because when you take the opponents into account and uh, the, the schemes of the opponents into account, I think it's a degree of context that probably puts some so what have been so far less than uh, 
incredibly impressive statistics uh, into a degree of context of, all right, but when they're playing offenses that are going to do certain things um, and get the ball out and get the ball to the edge quick and those sorts of things, um, it, it's not quite as bad necessarily as the, as the statistics might indicate or as average as the statistics might indicate. But uh, again, uh, you know, I'm getting way into the weeds of some of it from a broad picture standpoint. Uh, what's been your thoughts on, on some of the pass rush stuff? Yeah, I mean, you know, you kind of come into it this year thinking that it's going to be, you know, kind of the strength of the defense because of the number of the guys that they have there. You know, DJ Johnson, Brandon Dorless, uh, uh, Swinson, um, you know, but also because we talked about this coming into the year, how, you know, obviously you had Kayvon Thibodeau last year, but in terms of like actual like results right like the sack numbers were, were way down last year historically so uh what is the what is the sack total this year do you have that james yeah so so far they've got 13 uh sacks as a defense and uh over six games that's that's a 217 per game and that's basically in the middle of the country yeah yeah i think that you expected it to be better and also frankly you know <sighs> It just is going to get tougher, right? When you start looking at, at at the quarterbacks that they are going to be facing going forward, you know, it's DTR. Then you go a few weeks down past that, it's Michael Penix, who you know certainly caught people's attention early on, and then Cam 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 Rising in you know at Utah, like and they're going to have to get to these quarterbacks, especially to take the pressure off of what has so far been an you know underwhelming um, secondary. So it, it's gonna have to it's gonna have to be better. Um, I don't know how you how that happens. I don't know how you get it there. But to me, that has been something that I expected to be kind of the headline for this defense, and it really hasn't been. There will definitely be a chance for, um, for them to pad the stats a little bit uh, because they Colorado. do play Cal. They, they, <laughs> Cal and also Colorado. Cal, Cal and Colorado are are two teams, and Colorado because they're just awful, and Cal because. They have allowed 16 sacks so far uh, in five games, mind you. Uh, so those are teams who they could pad their stats against considerably uh, in that regard. But to your point, yeah, you also have Utah and Washington and UCLA and Oregon State still on the schedule. And, I mean, four of their next six opponents are the next four in the pecking order in the top half of the Pac-12 in terms of sacks allowed. You know, obviously Oregon's only allowed one. The next group is Utah, Washington, UCLA, and Oregon State. So those are the better lines, the quarterbacks who either can avoid uh, pressure by their mobility or by design. So, yeah, that's going to be a challenge. For as much as they may be able to pad their stats in two of the games, you know, there's four games where that's going to be the proving ground. Yep. Uh, and those negative plays are going are, are the things that, yes, could very well decide one or more of those games uh, is whether or not they're, you know, are they able to get to the quarterback more than once in the course of the entire game? And if you I do just, that just, in, in a just, close game against a Utah or a UCLA, right. it, it makes a dramatic difference. It, may, it could, could change the entire complexion of a ball game um, with one of those kinds of plays. And, and yeah, you mentioned like, DJ Johnson has probably done more or less uh, what you were hoping for right. uh, from him in terms of four sacks of the first six games. I mean, look, you put that over the course of a whole season, he's going to end up with eight or nine sacks. Yep. Well, guess what? If you're going to end up with eight or nine sacks, you're going to be at or near the top of the entire conference. So he's doing just fine. Um, and Dorless has played, you know, he's played when he when he's played at his best, he has played really, really well. 
at times some of the interior defensive tackles, while they may not be getting a ton of pass rush, they're doing very well against the run. And this is, you know, for all the, for all the things we're talking about where there's deficiencies on the defense, the run defense has been it's superb. Been the best, best yeah, it's been league. absolutely outstanding. Um, so for all the, you know for the areas that they may have deficiencies. And look, that's part of the reason why some of the passing and defensive numbers are bad too, is the opponents don't have a choice. And when the opponents get down, they're not going to run as much. They're going to throw. All understood. So again, I, I hey, throw out the uh, 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 throw out the, the situational moments where you're up a whole bunch. Right. But we're, I'm talking about the situational moments where you're supposed to be at a statistical advantage and it's turning into a disadvantage um, on those third down splits specifically. I'm talking about on sacks where, again, you're supposed to be at a statistical advantage to get a sack on third and seven plus, and you aren't getting home as much as you should be. Because you know you can pin your ears back because the offense has to throw, and you're either not getting the pressure, or even when you do, the ball's still getting completed, and it's turning into first downs. That That's where the entire picture of, we talk about the pass defense and the secondary, we talk about now the front seven and the uh, pass rush, that's where it all has to work hand in hand. One will help the other, and vice versa. Um, you know, better coverage on third down will help the rush get home. Um, better rush will obviously bail out the coverage at times. Um, I think those are the areas you know that really this defense has to improve most. Um, because it, anybody can point out missed tackles. Anyone can point out missed tackles in the entire country. That's what Alabama can point out missed tackles. Georgia can can point out missed tackles. Look, if you want to go back to Alabama, Texas A&M, Alabama, uh, uh, Texas, you can believe me, you can go through missed tackles. So, again, some of the best defenses in the country, some of the best teams in the country can go through that every week. That's a given. I'm talking about very more specifically, um, and I think, frankly, outside of, yes, all right, yeah, the Georgia game, sure. Wazoo because of stylistically how they did things. I don't think they've had a whole lot of missed tackle problems. Um, even this past week, all right, late, there were a couple, but not anything particularly egregious on right. missed tackles. Now, there were a couple of blown assignments <laughs> this past week, <laughs> but but not necessarily missed tackles. Um, the, the two long runs uh, late in the first half in particular, uh, those those were more on, on linebacker assignments than they were on, on missed tackles, per se. But I think as a whole, that that's some of the areas where they could improve. Um, to, uh, to to wrap us up for uh, for the week, Bill, the areas, as we've kind of taken it holistically, what are the areas uh, that you think will go about defining um, how they'll end up finishing up here? Now that they're, or they're 5-1 at the midpoint, they're in the borderline of the top 10, they have this big matchup with UCLA coming up. Uh, what do you think will ultimately go about uh, you know defining this season? Uh, the rest of the way for Oregon as it attempts to, yes, to get to Las Vegas to play for another Pac-12 championship. And if it's going to do that, uh, I would imagine that it can go no worse than 5-1 and one, uh, during the second half of the season because I, I, I don't know if they can afford to go 4-2 and two and therefore be 7-2 and two in league play. And I suppose they could go 4-2 and two as long as you hold the tiebreakers over Utah and Washington, I guess um, that that's probably okay, um, and you could probably still make it to uh, to the Pac-12 championship, assuming that USC is that other team. 
But if you lose two games and and we're, you're given the tiebreakers over Utah and Washington, that could mean a loss to UCLA uh, and somebody else. And then UCLA might very well be that team who plays you know USC a second time in a championship game. So like I say, I think they probably need to go five and one to at least uh, to to lock up things in in terms of the play in Vegas. What what do you think it's going to take um, on the big picture uh, from a record standpoint, and, and what do you think it, it's going to require them to do to get there? Yeah, I think anything more than one loss makes it makes it tricky. Uh, you know, although I mean, like, we're gonna have to see what 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 Utah does uh, the rest of the way. Um, you know, next week or this week is going to be you know massive uh, for the Utes' hopes of of staying of staying in the mix. I mean, that might be kind of a moot point by you know Saturday evening. Um, <clears throat> you know, in terms of what the identity of this team is going to be or what's going to define the rest of the way, you know, I think at the fifty at the fifty percent you know mark of the season you generally know what a team's strengths and weaknesses are. Um, yes, they can improve those weaknesses. We've talked about those defensively. Obviously, the past defense has to get better, but it's not going to go from 12th to 3rd. You know, I mean, it's incrementally kind of, you know, locking down and making, you know, key plays along the way. So to me, this is going to be a team that, you know, has to keep its foot on the gas, uh, you know, on the ground. I mean, this has been the best, you know, the this has been the best uh, rushing offense and as a result, the best offense in the conference that has to remain. And it's been the best rush defense. So, um, you know, continue to lock down defensively and then make enough big plays, you know, defensively through the air that teams aren't able to exploit that, that secondary, you know, when you are forcing them to the air because the ground, the ground defense has been so good. So I think, you know, those hallmarks that we've seen so far are going to have to continue to be the strengths and they're just going to have to get, you know, a little bit better, if not, you know, you know, significantly better in in the areas of weakness. I, I tend to agree in that. I think, look, it's a whole. You're going to win a lot of football games if you lead your league in rushing offense and rushing defense. I mean, you just are. Yep. You know, Utah has won the league in two of the last three years doing it. Yeah, you're going to win a lot. You're going to win a lot if you if you lead the league in one of those two categories. You're going to win a whole lot if you lead in both. You're going to be a problem if you lead in both. And again, obviously, Utah won the league last year. It led the league in both. It played for a league title against Oregon in 2019. It led the league in both. If Oregon continues to hold true to that identity of being a great running offense and being a really stalwart uh, run defense, it buys itself time to correct and adjust and add yep. offensively and to adjust and shore up things defensively. But ultimately, um, to me, I, th- I have the biggest concern in terms of pass defense because how can you? I mean, you just have to. Um, and that's and that's with one of the better corners in the league on this team in Christian Gonzalez. But the fact is, is you know, they have to get better um, on those splits. Otherwise, like I say, I mean, you've seen it too many times, not just here. You see it in cro- across college football. Those are the moments that, that will lose you football games. Um, and those are the areas that they've been getting beat and getting beat consistently at times in spots where they are supposed to be at a major advantage. So that has to see a drastic improvement um, when we're talking about trying to be five and one or six and oh in the final six games. I mean, again, if you want to expand the margin of error, well then, you know, that's a different, different situation. Um, offensively, 
I don't honestly, I don't think there's a whole ton that has to be uh, uh, really expounded upon. Um, other than I think you probably want to get the development of a whether you want to say a secondary weapon or a third weapon in the receiving core. Um, I, I think Chase Coda has obviously been that at times um, and pretty consistently so. Chris Hudson has offered that at times uh, on particularly in early downs. Terrence Ferguson was that uh, through the first three or four games, particularly in the red zone. He's cooled off a little bit, but at the same time, he started so hot that it was it was going to be almost impossible to sustain <laughs> the level that he was playing at the very beginning of the season. Um, if Franklin is, is far and away the lead guy and that's there, okay, fine. To me, um, establishing a pretty clear, absolute number two and three. Um, and look, if it's if it's a mix and you're going to be able to get... At this point, Coda's got 19 catches, Hudson's got 14, Ferguson's got 16. If you tell me at the end of the season, and Franklin's got 27 for, for those without the numbers in front of him. If you tell me at the end of the season that Franklin's got over 50 catches for 900 plus yards and three other guys have got 30 to 35, maybe even 40 catches, that's not bad, obviously. Um... I think in certain situational moments, yeah, you'd like to have um, just that, not just go-to. Again, they have go-to a go-to in Franklin. It's that, again, the, to me, I kind of split up the season in that September is you're trying to show who you are. October is now that you've shown who you are um, and, and other teams have shown who they are, what answers do you, you have for both your opponents and, and adjustments that you can make for them, and what adjustments can you make for yourself? And November, if you're going to pull away and be good, is what was your counter to their counter? And the teams who are at the very best, who are at elite, who are playing for conference championships and playoff spots, are the teams who are able to counter to the counter, who are going to have answers for, all right, this is what we do. Oh, you want to take that away? Here's how we still keep it alive. That's where I think, at the, particularly when we get to this midpoint spot and assessing this offense specifically, I think those are the areas that, from a passing game perspective, um, I'd like to see and would want to see uh, this team potentially show uh, in the second half of the season. What is their answer for? If teams are going to try to take away Troy Franklin in this spot, how do they keep him open? If teams are going to try and take away Terrence Ferguson in the red zone, how do they still go to him? And I thought you saw that at times the past two weeks, including this past weekend. Um, there was stuff formationally that Oregon did to get Troy Franklin in very favorable spots that either it may go unnoticed just in general because we're getting in the weeds or it may go unnoticed because it's Pac-12 network and the camera angles are sometimes uh, leave a lot to be desired. But there were, there were times where Oregon freed up Franklin. Uh, I remember one throw specifically where he was lined up in the slot and it was a, a long throw over the middle where that was just good play design. It was a good play design, a good formation. It was a way pre-snap, the way that they moved guys around in order to create that opening where they created a favorable spot and it ends up being a 27-yard pass over the middle. That's the stuff that, you know, they they begin to show they have some answers and have some counters. You need to do that now against the better competition you're going to play in this league. Um, you do that... And hold true to the things that, like you mentioned, Bill, that you're already your strengths. 
you're going to be a really hard to beat team. I mean, that's that. There's no other way around it. You're going to be a really difficult team to beat if you if you lead the team if you lead the league in rushing and run defense and begin to have answers for when teams try to take your your strengths away. Um, yeah, you're going to be awfully hard to beat. For all you know, we've said about how much tougher the schedule gets in the second half, which it does. It still lines up real favorably in that you have you have UCLA, Washington, and Utah all at home. All at home. That's yeah. That's huge. And the fact there is no USC. Um, so, I mean, you know, it might, you know, it might come down, you know, and we've seen this in Oregon over the years. We, this might come down to, you know, what happens, you know, in Corvallis, you know, Thanksgiving weekend. And, you know, no matter how much better you think the Ducks might be than, than Oregon State, you know, that is a, I've, I've been to a couple of games there, at, you know, at Research Stadium, you know, with, with the construction. It's a very, very weird environment this year. You saw USC struggle with it. Um, you know, that could be a, you know, that could be a game of massive consequence. And that game's always more fun when there's something on the line. And the other part of it, like, and we'll kind of wrap on this uh, more or less is we're talking about the areas where, you know, and assessing where they are, where they could be things to improve, et cetera, et cetera, all fine and well and good. And, but like I said, we don't lose the perspective of for as good as this team is playing that, as we mentioned before, this is where they ought to be. You know, this this is not there was a coaching change, but there was a coaching change off success, not off failure. Mm-hmm. This was a ten win team last season. I know everybody forgets that because of how the season ended. This was a ten win team last season. That yes, had to replace a quarterback, a coach, a coordinator, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Ten wins. That recruited at an elite level for four and five years. That at five and one has been favored in its five wins. So they are where they ought to be and are, quote-unquote, supposed to be. And by the way, is going to be favored, and right now is in the early lines, against UCLA, will obviously be favored against Cal and Colorado. And if I had to bet on it today, and I'm I'm not one to do so, but if I were, they will be favored in every one of their remaining games. So when we're talking about how they get to the end goal, it's not just aspirational because everyone hopes to play for a championship if you put yourself in a position to do so. This is a team that was built to do so, that did so a year ago, that won the asterisk for the championship in 20, that won the championship in 19, and is built to win the championship this year. So the that's the other part of this for, you know, again, to just drive home to some folks in the fan base who want to like revise and have a little bit of revisionist history by way of like oh you know don't know what the expectations were for the season no you know exactly what the expectations were for the season this team was picked to play for and compete for a conference championship they are still in position to do so we are evaluating how they could possibly do it and how and the things that are required to get there but the expectation is that they're going to get there not Oh boy, here's this plucky little team who somehow find somehow somehow some way, despite all the odds, got the five right. and one. No, they are exactly where they're supposed to be at five and one. <laughs> well, is, and especially again, I just to not to not to you know belabor this point, but especially against you know the easy half of their schedule. Um, yes, you know, so, some yes. good opponents, but it's like you know you can say oh you're favored, you know. You know, being favored by three points, you know, here and there, you know, as as you know, is not necessarily a prediction of outcome, but it is a. You know, it's certainly an indicator of who should be winning on a, in, in a given week. There were games where, you know, I think I did pick the Ducks to lose to BYU in the paper when that when that game came through. Um, 
definitely overestimated that defense and, and kind of where it was in terms of health coming off the um, the Baylor win. But you know, there are games that you know certainly seem like games they could lose, and they won in you know you know really impressive fashion. You know, they looked dead in the water against Washington State. You know, epic fourth quarter. So um, you know they've taken care of the easy half of their schedule, but they've also run into some trouble, and they've and they've you know found a way out of it. So that that bodes well to me for you know, the second half as it, as it, you know, kicks into gear next week, because you're going to see, you know, I mean, I mean, I don't want to get too good because USC is probably the other team along with Oregon that you'd say is at the top of the conference right now. Um, you know, they'll see UCLA, they'll see Utah, they'll see Washington, whatever the hell is going on with Washington. And, you know, it's going to, it's going to be a tricky half, but I think that the first half has set them up for success. Agreed. And they are, they, they are today, literally, favored in every one of their remaining games you can find a line available for not just ucla you can find a line available for washington utah and oregon state for cal and colorado give me a break you know what you know what it's gonna be they are they are literally favored today in every one of their remaining games so that's where we say this is a team that is exactly where they ought to be and are supposed to be and how they get there, and so when we're talking about them in the first week in December, uh, playing in Las Vegas, where again they are "quote unquote" supposed to be. Well, you know, if they get there, that means they will have won eleven in a row, and will probably be playing an awfully good team, whether it be UCLA again or USC. Well, if they get to that point, then then maybe those unbelievably infinitesimal chances after forty nine to three of of being alive for a playoff berth, maybe. Maybe here's the thing, and we'll wrap on this, Bill. Is but this weekend, given that yes, obviously, uh, you know, I know Oregon State is playing obviously, but what is the uh, assessment of uh, around the greater landscape of when you see who's in front of them, and you know, the next couple of weeks, where obviously Oregon has UCLA first, so they got their own challenge. But when you start to see a, a path to uh, potential postseason and what things start to look like. Is there a game this weekend outside of, of Oregon State, Washington State? Is there a game this weekend that you are paying particularly close attention to um, that may have ramifications for the Ducks uh, this weekend? I mean, Utah USC is huge, right? Because mm-hmm. if 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 Utah beats SC, it kind of falls back into this category of you know the Pac-12's top teams just kind of cannibalize each other. If USC, you know, takes care of <laughs> takes yes, care I of Utah and of you know beats UC beats a U- <laughs> beats a good UCLA team at the end of the year, um, you know, and goes into the the Pac-12 championship game undefeated, looking like a playoff team. And the Ducks have won, you know, 11 straight or whatever it is at that point, going into that game with just the Georgia loss at that point, and then can beat USC. You know, a USC team that has looked really beatable uh, at times this year, by the way. Um, that, to me, would be sort of the path, um, obviously, but, you know, if Utah beats SC and then the Ducks beat Utah and it just sort of feels like everything is circular uh, like we've seen before, then it gets a lot it gets a lot trickier. So that, that's probably the game of, of most immediate consequence to the Ducks. But, I mean, you're going to start seeing some of these undefeated teams lose. I mean, you got two undefeated teams playing each other this week in the Big Ten in Michigan and Penn State. Um, you know, Bama and Tennessee play each other. So you're going to have, you know, you're going to start seeing a lot more, you know, one-loss teams. And, it's, and the Ducks are going to be in good company there at least in terms of record, but you're not going to have necessarily the same, you know, nobody else is going to have a 49 to three shellacking, you know, non-conference shellacking kind of dragging them down. 
Yeah, agreed. There's there's going to be um, a few this weekend, and obviously, yes, the the Utah SC game uh, being at the top of the list from a conference perspective for sure. Um, but yeah, there's there's several other ones in the national landscape this week that uh, yes have an enormous consequences in those leagues, but will have a, a consequence or, or two, particularly on the Pac-12, uh, whether it be for Oregon, RC, UCLA, or anyone else who's hoping to make the playoff. Oregon and UCLA could both be in the top ten by by next week, depending on how how this weekend goes. I mean, this could be a ten nine. You know, again, rankings, whatever. But like, this could be a top ten showdown just with the fact that you're going to have a couple top ten teams taking on their first loss this week, and they're inevitably going to they're inevitably going to slide. Very, very much possible. Very much possible. And we'll get into that one obviously next week, and we'll set that up uh, on next week's edition of uh, the podcast and stuff. And we'll we'll get into the uh, the weeds and particulars of uh, what could be yes a top ten matchup uh, between Oregon and UCLA. Whether it is or it isn't on paper is is. It doesn't change the fact that it's obviously a very, very significant game. Um, so, what, whatever, wherever it may stand in rankings is, right. uh, you know, just a, a, a it's window dressing, small thing. Yes, it's window. It, it adds, it, you know, it's a sales point. But I don't, I don't, you know, given that the game is sold out, I'm not sure who we're necessarily having to sell it to. I think our audience is already pretty dialed into the, the game. They're gonna go, you know, I wasn't gonna pay attention. I was gonna go apple picking, but now that you tell me there's a top ten game, well, in that case. Well, and I, yeah. I guess I would just, I would just say, you know, the, the, the bigger the matchup, you know, the higher the rankings, the, you know, the, the sexier, the, you know, that's where we talk about, you know, playoff getting stuff, the attention yeah. of, of uh, yeah. yeah, exactly, playoff stuff, and, and you know, making a bigger impact nationally. So there is some, 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 some importance there. I don't know if it's that much different, you know, eleven playing twelve versus eight playing ten or whatever it might be. But it is, you know, I think, every, you know, for the Ducks, you know, trying to climb back from that forty-nine to three drubbing. Um, every little bit helps. Indeed, and uh, particularly not just uh, uh, keep on winning, but if you beat good teams, if you if, conversely, if, if you were to blow the doors off a good team along the way, that's how you start to really change um, perceptions of, of your own um, taking one on the chin uh, earlier on in the season. But that's a long way, again, long way to go to some of those things, and we'll, we'll definitely uh, get into the games more in the particulars. Uh, Bill, you've, uh, before we... Uh, uh, bid you do here. You've got your, some some self promotional stuff of your own here. Um, beyond obviously all our work on on uh, Oregon Live that folks can check out in the Oregonian, um, you've started your own podcast with us as well. I want to make sure that uh, that folks are aware of that and uh, check that out uh, accordingly. So uh, give your your plug for your uh, specific podcast. Yeah, the podcast is called Sports by Northwest. Uh, you know, we have a guest every week talking about kind of what's going on in the wide world of sports relative to the Pacific Northwest. We've had some great uh, some great guests so far. We had Ken Simonton, the Oregon State great. We had um, Jackie Siles, former uh, Portland Fire star in the WNBA, who's uh, featured in a new documentary. And uh, we've also had um, we've also had Brooke Olsen Dam, the Portland Trailblazer sideline reporter. So we have uh, you know had a lot of fun doing it, um, getting it off the ground. So you know, hopefully, folks who you know are listening to Ducks Confidential and reading our coverage have seen have seen the podcast and checked it out. But if not, it like this podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. You know, download, rate review and i'm sure all that holds true for ducks confidential too james yes yes and uh we thank everybody who already does listen uh and who subscribes and if you don't make sure to do so so that way it just ends up in your feed along with all your other uh favorite shows automatically and uh yes give us the the likes the reviews the stars the whole thing so that way more people can find it as well uh well we thank bill for joining us in this week of the podcast we will be back next week as i say to preview the ucla matchup 
and get into uh, anything in the in the weeds, uh, specifically with that particular one between the Ducks and the Bruins and what should be, obviously, yes, uh, and is going to be a, a marquee game and probably one of the defining games of the rest of the season for Oregon. So with that, uh, we bid you adieu here for this week, and we'll see you next week.